Hello and welcome to Box Office Culture. I'm your host, Tony Nunes, and this week a very special episode, a live conversation I had with Matt Singer, writer of the new book Opposable Thumbs about Siskel and Ebert, which we had here at the United Theater last week in our post-credit scene gallery. Keep track of these events on our website, unitedtheater.org. We have a lot more events like this coming up after the new year, and you don't want to miss out. Enjoy the show. book talk for me because this is right up my alley um when i heard about this book i reached out to matt and i said i i would love to do a book talk here um i'm tony newens i'm the artistic director here at the united theater um and i'm just going to give a quick introduction to matt um with some of the things that he's done of note um Editor and film critic of ScreenCrush.com. He's a member of the New York Film Critics Circle. He won a Webby Award for his work on the independent film channel's website, IFC.com, and was the on-air host of IFC News. He ran Critic Wire, the blog of film criticism at IndieWire. I think that's where we first crossed paths. Mm-hmm. Um, he's appeared on numerous podcasts and was co-host of the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. His writing has appeared in print in The Village Voice, Time Out New York, and Time Out Chicago, and online at the AV Club and Screen Crush. He's also appeared on television on CBS This Morning, MTV, and E. His previous book was Marvel's Spider-Man, From Amazing to Spectacular, and his newest book, which we're all here to talk about today, is Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Welcome, Matt Singer. Thank you. That's it, right? Now we're done? That we're was... done. We're done. All right. Good night. <laughs> that was 30 minutes of accolades. Um, My goal is to get someone walking by and for us to look so excited that they go, I got to go in there. So everyone look really... In... Wow. It happens. I mean, this that's is That's what it... I want to happen. If I, in case you see me doing that, that's why I'm going to try to, I'm going to play to the people walking by on the street. Sorry. Yes. So I want to start with some local context uh, and ties locally into your love of cinema. You have family here in Westerly. Yes. And uh, in this room. And in this room. (laughs) But I wanted to talk about your experience uh, at a former Rhode Island art house cinema that I read about. Um, And I was wondering, as we sit in a cinema tonight, if you could share the experience that you had at the Cable Car Cinema in Providence and how that kind of led you to your love of movies and where you are today. Yes, yeah. You said former. It's not there anymore? It's not there anymore. Oh, that's really sad. So, yes, um, I guess it would have been the summer of 1996. So I was 15 years old, and my parents sent me away for a couple of weeks during the summer to do like a 
pre-college kind of thing where you're, you go to a college and, and it's supposed to help you get into a better college later and it doesn't actually and it's all a scam that colleges do to make money during the summer when there's no kids there. And I hated it, and it was a miserable experience. And I was they they had I was they, I studied like economics or something, and I was literally like they sent me to Providence, and I sat in like my dorm room doing like economics problems all summer. It was the saddest thing you could make a nerdy child do, uh, you know, a fifteen-year-old child. Um, and it was so bad, I was complaining to my parents, and they eventually took pity on me and said, "Just stop doing the work. Who cares? Go do something you want to do." And, uh, and so, like, one of the last nights I was there, I was wandering around. Um, I had made no friends because I was doing homework the whole time. And I stumbled across the cable car theater, and they were showing the John Sayles movie Lone Star, which I only knew about because I had heard about it on this television show I was obsessed with at the time called Siskel and Ebert. And I am fairly certain that movie is rated R, and I was 15 and should not have been allowed in. I don't, God bless them for letting me in. I did not have adult supervision or someone to buy the ticket, but uh, they let me in. And um, the cable car, th had, had anyone ever been to the cable car theater? I mean, when you're a 15-year-old kid who grew up in suburban New Jersey, that was like the coolest place I had ever seen in my life. They had couches instead of theater seats. And I was just like, Today I am a man. <laughs> wow. It was great. And I, and I loved the movie. And I, don't, again, only knew about it because of Siskel and Ebert. And um, yes, it was a very kind of um, memorable, weighty experience in my life. And I definitely, uh, it made a huge, huge impression. I still remember it. I'm sad to hear that it's not there. I feel like recently someone told me they thought it was, but I guess... Yeah, it, it too could. beautiful a spot to uh, exist in our world. It, I guess. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Was so was that kind of the start of your love of film, though, or did it predate that? That exact uh, going to the movie theater, that going to the cable car theater. That yeah yeah. It was around. It wasn't that moment, but it was like around that time. That was the time where yeah, like in in um, school, I was studying like yeah, like. Uh, business administration and economics, and I hated all of it. But what I loved was watching Siskel and Ebert and learning for the first time about movies. And um, that was the age where I was really discovering that. Because, you know, I, I went to the movies as a kid, like any kid does. You go to the movie theater. But again, I'm growing up in suburban New Jersey. I'm going to the Freehold Metroplex the movie City Five in East Brunswick. These are not uh, these are not the cable car theater, and the movies they are showing are not Lone Star by John Sayles. So it was really watching the show around that age that really, when I first became obsessed with Siskel and Ebert, and they're recommending these much more, you know, hard to find uh, art house movies, foreign movies, documentaries, and then seeing them in experiences like that and going, wow, this is actually really cool. That that really made me want to uh, do it. Come on in, just come on in. Come on. No? All right, anyway. <laughs> so I, it's a good place to start in our conversation about Siskel and Ebert then uh, to talk about your own history with Siskel and Ebert 
and Eber in particular, um, you kind of went full circle there from watching the show. Um, and then you worked as a contributor for the series Ebert Presents at the Movies. So can you talk a little bit about your personal history working with Ebert? Yes. So, yeah. So um, as you will read in this fine book, there were, um, you know, many iterations of Siskel and Ebert. And then after, uh, spoiler alert, Siskel passed away and then Ebert lost the ability to speak. Um you know, they, the show kind of continued on with different hosts for a little while, and then eventually what happened was uh, Disney, who owned the show or syndicated the show at that time, they kind of decided to just kind of end it, but uh, Roger Ebert, who was still alive, he just couldn't speak, thought that there was still kind of a, an audience for the show. And so he and his wife, Chaz, restarted the show at PBS, actually the same PBS station where the show had originally started in Chicago, WTTW. And it was called Ebert Presents at the Movies. And he wasn't the host. He was, Roger was the producer. He did segments where he would um, appear on camera and then someone else would uh, do his voice. And they had other hosts, full-time hosts, Christy Lemire and Ignati Vishnovetsky. And then they had contributing critics, and that was what I got to do. Uh, I did a couple of segments for the show. And as someone who grew up watching that show, being obsessed with that show, uh, it was a big deal for me personally to get to uh, be on that show and also to interact with Roger Ebert because he was a producer. I would email him. I had his email address. I could email him anytime. He would respond. <laughs> it was really cool, and uh, you know, I tried not to do the the Chris Farley show thing of you know, like freaking, you know, hi, <laughs> um, where I would you know write you know. Remember when you did Siskel and Ebert? That was really cool. <laughs> I tried to keep those comments to a minimum, and he was great. He was very encouraging and supportive, and liked what I was doing on the show, and. For a while, I thought that was going to be as good as it gets for me. But, uh, you know, I feel like now the book kind of has uh, supplanted that in some ways. But, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. So I want to dive into the book a little bit. Um, this book is a, a really comprehensive history on Siskel and Ebert. Um, so I just want to ask a couple of questions about that history and about the history of film criticism as well. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe the atmosphere of film criticism that existed in the 70s um, when they, they started and talk a bit about the history of film criticism as a whole, which you touch on in the book. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people know about the, the general overall history of film no. criticism. Not really. No? No, I don't think so. Come on, who doesn't love the I history mean, of film criticism? I'm sure yeah! I'm sure there's some people in this room who do, but um, if we can talk about that a little bit and um, sure. what that atmosphere eventually looked like in the mid-70s when Siskel and Ebert right. got their start. Yes, so the show, yes, uh, the very first episode of the show, which went under a different name, it premiered in 1975, which was a very exciting time for movies, more, almost more than film criticism. I mean, the movie criticism kind of followed the fact that the movies were exciting. Exciting movies tends to lead to exciting film criticism. Um, and both Siskel and Ebert got their jobs as print critics a few years earlier in the late 1960s. Ebert started in 67, and uh, Siskel started in 69. So the, the, the period for film criticism was, I, like I said, it was sort of 
exciting because the movies were exciting. This is the period that we now call like the new Hollywood era, where essentially the studios were in such rough shape, the movie industry was in such rough shape, that they had basically, they threw up their hands and said, does anyone want to make a movie that will appeal to young people? And that was sort of the impetus behind a lot of the exciting movies that people still remember from that period today, like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde and all sorts of other examples. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was the period where Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris were writing things and yelling at each other in print. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it became film and the conversation around film became so kind of important that, yeah, every newspaper started to have their own film critic, essentially. And that's how Ebert and Siskel got their jobs was in that period. And um, yeah, it, it, then a few years later, the show was started. And now it's sort of insane to consider, but it, it the show started this whole almost cottage industry of film criticism on television. There was at one point three competing TV shows at the same time, all on the air, all being shot in Chicago with six different hosts, weekly film criticism TV shows. Now it's, you know, now there's zero, there are zero now, but, uh, they, you know, the popularity of this show was so great that it eventually spawned, uh, you know, copycats, essentially. So what, what was it about these two men in particular, Gene Siskel, who wrote for the Chicago Tribune, and Roger Ebert of Chicago Sun-Times, at that particular point in the 70s, that sparked and, and kind of made their movie review jump to the, the mainstream, I guess you would say. Besides their rugged good looks. You yeah, yeah, very good looking their men. Their roguish yes. handsomeness and their raw masculinity. I mean, they were like the leading men that they were reviewing. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple of things, I think, that uh, were secrets to their success. One was they both were uh, pretty good at their jobs as print film critics, which was their first job. You know, Ebert won the Pulitzer Prize just a few months before the first episode of the show went on the air. And Siskel was not a slouch either, maybe not quite the beautiful poetic wordsmith that Ebert was and would remain, but a good critic and had some very, um, I don't know what you want to say. He, he, he had his own strengths, and in some ways they had complementary strengths, which ultimately were, was a boon to the show. And then the other important kind of ingredient uh, was that they so vehemently disliked each other. Um, and then they were paired together on this show, sort of sh almost like shackled, like what's that movie, The Defiant Ones, where the two guys are kind of uh, chained together. They don't want to be together, but they have to work together. I mean, that was sort of the energy that they brought to the show. And those copycats we were just mentioning, they never had that. You know, when, when other people tried to replicate that formula, it was usually like, well, you're a good critic and you're also a good critic, so you'll be good together. But they never had that spark, that, that intense dislike bordering on hatred that these guys <laughs> genuinely did have, especially in the beginning of the show. And that was really the thing that made the show kind of fly. It was that, yes, they were very smart, they knew movies, they were good at their jobs, but it wasn't just them doing that on the show. The show had this element of drama. You know, what's gonna happen this week? What movie is going to set them off? What thing will one say that the other can't stand? 
uh, and it wasn't always the thing you would expect. You know, it wasn't always the most important or the biggest movie. Sometimes the most banal and the most forgettable thing could turn into this huge, you know, shouting match. So um, there was this suspense to a show about film critics talking to each other. And I think that was what they had that many other people have tried to replicate and failed. Yeah, that dynamics it's become legendary. Um, and it was a very real dynamic from what, it, what you write in the yes, book. Yes, it was real. How would you describe each of their approach and their own standards to, to what makes a good or bad film and how that passion kind of created that juxtaposition between the two of them? What, well, they eat like their own separate tastes? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they agreed sometimes. Um, yeah, they agreed a lot of the time, but you're right. I mean, they did have, you're, you're absolutely right. They did have, um, well, like all critics do. I mean, you know this as well. It's like you have things that you personally like that maybe other people don't like or don't like as much as you. And I have this, we, we, you know, and every person sitting here has kinds of movies they like. They have kinds of movies they don't like, that they prefer, that they don't prefer. So for them, yeah, I mean, they did have um, different tastes, different approaches, which again was really important because if it was just two guys who saw movies the exact same way, I like this movie. I also like this movie. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's move on to the next film. Like, that was not the atmosphere on the show. It was the opposite. It was um, a situation where they sometimes agreed in terms of their vote. Like, they could say two thumbs up, and then they could fight for 10 minutes about why it was two th you know, why they liked it. They could have totally different opinions about what made a movie good. You know, there's... Um, an example of that would be something like Wall Street. If you go home tonight and YouTube, like the Wall Street Siskel and Ebert review, you'll see, you know, one, one will say, well, I liked it because I thought Charlie Sheen was great in this movie. And the other says, well, Michael Douglas was obviously the best part. And then, no, no, he wasn't good at all. I didn't like him at all. Charlie Sheen was the better part of the movie. And then one will say, well, I really liked it because I felt like it really understood finance and the culture of Wall Street. And the other will say, it doesn't understand it at all. They don't. But then at the end, Two thumbs up. They still liked it. They just totally saw it completely differently. Um, and that was the case of a, of a lot of movies. And they did have certain kinds of movies that they were partial to or not partial to. Uh, Roger Ebert was a big uh, science fiction fan, for example. He grew up reading science fiction magazines. He had his own science fiction fanzine called Stymie that he published himself. Um, and Gene Siskel hated most science fiction movies. And he was always complaining about uh, dark, dystopian science fiction movies. Why is the future so dark and depressing in these movies? Why aren't, where are the happy, optimistic movies about the future? And so they would fight about that. And there's, I, we could, I could sit here and tell you 10 other examples, but I can see that that perhaps might not be the best use of our time. <laughs> but yes, they definitely saw movies very differently at times. And there, that thumbs up, thumbs down review system is obviously iconic. Uh, the title of the book, which is a brilliant title, Opposable Thumbs, uh, talks about that, that very rating system. Um, how did that system of re review come to be, and where do you think it stands today in the pop culture zeitgeist? Well, people certainly still say two thumbs up a lot. And I, I mean, I, I would wager probably some people don't even quite realize that the, the, the I, I mean, obviously giving a thumb, one thumb up, thumbs up to something, you know, that goes back to, you know, the Romans, but <laughs> they didn't create that. But, but the phrase two thumbs up 
was really the invention of, of the show. And the way it came about was, you know, as we were talking about, the, the show started at PBS in Chicago, and it kind of bounced around from a few different places. After the show got popular, they Gene and Roger decided to, they weren't making uh, much money or as much money as they wanted to be making. And so they decided to leave the show at PBS and start their own show in syndication. And they did indeed make a lot of money doing that. And when they did that, it was determined that they needed to change the show just enough so that they would not be sued, essentially, for you know, a uh, copyright violation, I guess. And one of the things they had to change was the rating system. The original rating system on the show was yes and no. So it was <laughs> two yeses or two noes or a split vote. And for whatever reason, two yeses did not really uh, take off as a thing. Um, so when they went to the new show in syndication, they needed a new rating system, and supposedly, according to the producer of the show, she told me that it was Roger who suggested the thumbs. And he said, well, why don't we do thumbs up if it's good and thumbs down if it's bad? And that was, uh, that was how it was decided, supposedly. And Gene, who, uh, they were, these two gentlemen were very competitive. They both liked to take credit for anything and everything. They wanted their, both wanted their names to be first in the title. Um, he never said, he never would claim that he created that. He would sometimes, when it was asked, he would say, okay, well, maybe Roger said <laughs> thumbs up, two thumbs up. That was his idea. But I said two thumbs way up. <laughs> that was what he would uh, say. So I, that seems like a pretty solid determination of who came up with what there. Is that rating system trademarked today? It still is, as of the writing of the book, which you know now is like a year or so ago, I looked it up, uh, I looked on the website of the, the US Trademark Office and uh, the Ebert Company and whatever Siskel's company is called, yes, they still hold the trademark. They trademarked it in the 80s when the show got bigger and bigger and Thumbs Up became so huge. They didn't want other film critics to use that in reviews you know, because that was their that was their trademark. So if it's you know they didn't want, you know, Joe Schmo from East Jabip saying two thumbs up and getting his name in uh, in perhaps in movie ads. So yes, they trademarked it then. And when I looked it up, it was still they still their their um, their heirs, their families. Yeah, they still they still hold. So don't you can't say don't say two thumbs up. Don't write it in a movie review at least. You can say <laughs> thumbs up. They don't own thumbs up or thumbs down. But as soon as you go to the two thumbs, now you're, in, now you're potentially in putting yourself in legal jeopardy. It's like singing happy birthday. Yeah, it, I mean, it don't literally it. is. Yeah. yeah, you can't do that. Trademark infringement. Yep. Uh, so two-part question. Um, what made the television film review different from the written newspaper reviews of the time? And um, was, it, was that the start of the hot take? Was it the start of the hot take? I mean, maybe. I'm, the, the thing that made their reviews, I mean, obviously uh, uh, a print review is gonna probably be longer in terms of the sheer number of words than a, uh, than a review on television. Um, it might be a little more in depth, but a TV review, and this was one of the things that the show really pioneered, was that the TV review, a review of movies on television, could show you clips from the movie they were talking about. You could illustrate what you're saying. You could say, this movie is beautiful, 
let's look at a clip. So it's not just the writer having to try to describe why a movie looks good. They could actually show it to you. And as simple as that sounds, that was really revolutionary at the time. Um, getting to see what a movie looked like before you paid your, at the time, probably, I don't know, $3, $4 maybe to see it, that was a big deal. And so that was absolutely something that differentiated the show. And then, yes, there when the copycats came along, that became a, a big thing was, yeah, when you watch a movie review on TV, you can actually see the movie and you can talk about this performance the lighting, the sound, the music, whatever it might be, you could actually back up your argument with clips from the movie, which was um, a big thing. Uh, in terms of uh, hot takes, um, I, don't, I don't know if that was the start of that, although the show, if you, again, if you YouTube the show when you go home tonight, which is, I certainly recommend doing because it's a wonderful thing to do, said the guy who wrote the book about this. Um, you can find they did episodes that were, you know, obviously we think of Siskel and Ebert as like, you know, they do a show, they review five movies, but they would do occasionally these special episodes that are kind of like hot takes where they would do a theme and talk about that for 30 minutes. They would talk about, uh, you know, um, why colorization of movies is bad or why black and white is good or they would do a half an hour on a particular director they loved like Quentin Tarantino or sometimes films that they didn't like like they did once did a whole half hour on, on horror movies that they thought were too violent. So yeah, I mean they did kind of do special episodes sometimes that I think now we might call hot takes or, or at least kind of in the same realm. So I don't know if we want to blame them for that, but um, I mean, maybe they're kind of the forefathers of it in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, they, they had a turkey of the week segment. So sticking with the Thanksgiving thing. They had dogs of the week. Yep. They had uh, stinkers of the week. I think the turkey of the week was an idea that was pitched and rejected. Okay, all right. But um, I mean, it, was, it would not have been out of character at the time. Yeah, in the beginning of the show, they had a dog of the week where they would... The, wor the week's worst movie was dubbed the dog of the week. They had a dog sidekick. <laughs> they had multiple dog sidekicks because one dog died. Um, and another dog was too harsh a negotiator and demanded more money, so they got rid of him. Um, and then when they... That was all at PBS, and that was another part of the show that was determined to be... Um, potentially copyrightable, so when they moved to syndication, the dogs got the uh, heave-ho and they were replaced with a skunk, a live skunk, and uh, that was how they got the stinker of the week. And um, the skunks were not surprising, hard to believe that a skunk might not want to be on camera, and the skunk was not, um, he was not very cooperative. And so they, they, fi they fired the skunk, and then, the idea when they were trying to think of a replacement, their, their, the, the producer of the show came to them and said, boys, I got an idea. We're gonna do the turkey of the week. And they said, the turkey of the week. You now want us to sit with a turkey in the, in the <laughs> theater with us? And he said, no, a turkey vulture. And they said, we're not doing that. That's the end. <laughs> and that was the end of all the different stinkers and dogs of the week. That was, they, they drew the line and the segment was retired. I mean, in such a gimmick-heavy world like television, how do two writers, essentially, for newspapers... Incredibly handsome writers. Incredibly handsome, Rock Hudson... Rock Hudson-esque. ...esque writers yep. 
become TV personalities. I mean, what is what does it take to take the personality of someone who's a writer and and make them for TV? And I know I know that they've tried this many other times, and you know it has not succeeded like it has for these two. But what do you think it is about their their charisma, each of them individually, and their personality that that made them suited for television and essentially acting themselves. Right. I mean, they were kind of like the first reality show in some ways. We may, maybe we can't blame them for hot takes, but you can almost say that this was like the original reality show because it's two guys playing themselves, uh, having unscripted conversations on TV uh, at a time where that was not really a thing. I, I think what made them work for TV or become TV personalities was a lot of it was what we already said. It was that they had this intense animosity and that they figured out a way to bring from off camera to on camera. And when they figured that out, they had something because it wasn't just one guy saying, oh, the next movie we're going to talk about is Ridley Scott's Napoleon. It's an exciting film. You know, it was they would say, this is the movie we're going to talk about, and I loved it. And the other person would say, You're, what are you talking about? This is a terrible movie. This is Ridley Scott's worst movie. And um, so that, I think, was one part. And I think the other thing was, and it kind of goes along with that, was that they had this real kind of um, belief in honesty. Um, whereas now... I mean, there's so few film critics on TV now anyway, in any context, but if you think of some of the other people who've done stuff like this on TV, so many of them, they just seem very happy to be there and to be talking about movies and to be in the room with a famous movie star at a junket and just to be able to say, you know, oh, I love your new movie. It's yeah. so great. What was it like working with Martin Scorsese? What was it like working with... Denzel Washington, what was it? Oh, you were so good. You know, like that's the vibe that they bring. And uh, Siskel and Ebert's vibe was the opposite of that. You know, they would, you know, Gene Siskel would go to a press junket and he would sit down across from Madonna, who was promoting a movie, and say, Why is your why are your movies so bad? <laughs> to her face. And she would go like, What? You know, uh, he would, you know, and and when they would go on talk shows together, you know, to your point about being a TV personality, and, and they did so many talk shows, and they, they really kind of thrived in that environment, and it was the same thing. They would go on, and everyone else is just smiling and joking, and then they would come out and sit down and say, yeah, that movie wasn't very good, actually. When she was saying that it was such a great movie and a great, no, that was bad, that movie was bad. And why did you make this movie? This movie was also bad. Or like, oh, that one was good, but the new one you're doing is, <laughs> is not as good. What happened this time? You used to be good. Why are your movies bad? And so in, they would not play the chummy Hollywood game. They were honest. And you always knew, even if you disagreed with them, and maybe you always disagreed with them, you always felt you were getting their genuine, honest opinions. And I think that they really had a, um, a brand of, of sincerity and honesty so that you knew where they stood. And I think that is why that two thumbs up thing became so valuable, is because you, you, they couldn't be bought off by someone buttering them up, or uh, you know, they, they never said it to impress anybody. Even if their favorite director made a movie they didn't like, they would say so. You know, if Scorsese made The Color of Money, which was a movie I happened to love, but they hated, they said, oh, this is two thumbs down. Uh, I don't know what happened this time. He's usually so good. You know, it wasn't, it didn't matter who it was. If they thought it was bad, they were going to tell you. 
I mean, the, the honesty is one thing, but there's also definitely some power there that they had. You know, they were on late night shows like Letterman and frequently. Um, so what does that power bring? Uh, you were talking about movies, movie clips in particular, being kind of the draw and the thing that made these television review shows work, um, which in some regards is a marketing arm then of studios. They're using this to market their films and, you know, Siskel and Ebert are mainstream, everybody's watching. So what, what was the power that they had in, in that thumbs up, thumbs down review? Uh, were they, was Hollywood scared of them or, or kind of um, trying to get in their good graces? Or, and, and how do they react to that? Um, I, I guess it depends on, like Hollywood is kind of a big uh, thing. It probably depends on who and at what time and what movie. I mean, there were times where the studios were really angry with them and would in one case that's written about in the book they were banned from uh, a certain studios bless you uh screenings for a little while and uh i mean you talked about how powerful they were essentially without spoiling the whole story in the book the end result was they were very quickly unbanned because it was determined that um that they were uh you know, the hope that they would give two thumbs up to the next movie, whatever that might be, was not worth the, you know, uh, banning them in the short term. That they they did have this kind of uh, very large audience. You know, several million people were tuning in every single week. Um, in the late '80s, it was almost like 10 million people a week. That's how big the show was at that time. Which is a, another absurd thing to to consider that that many people were tuning in to hear these roguishly handsome men talking about films on a weekly basis. Um, but they, they, they were powerful. I mean, around that same time, Entertainment Weekly had, um, I think they did it annually, but I think the very first time they did like this list, I think it's called, it was called like the power list, and it was like a ranking of the, the most powerful people in Hollywood. And number 10 was Siskel and Ebert. The 10th most powerful people in Hollywood were these two schmoes in Chicago giving movie reviews. And I think at the time, Michael Eisner was the head of the, the Disney company, and he might have been number one. He was ahead of them. But their direct boss at Disney, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was another powerful guy in the Disney company, was below them on the list. So, yeah, they, were, they, were, they had some juice at that time, for sure. And... Um, I mean, I'm sure the studios did try to butter them up, but uh, kind of to what we were saying, they were pretty incorruptible. I mean, I, I, I can't think of an example of them giving a review that didn't seem genuine. Now, I might disagree. We, might, we all might disagree about any of them, but I, I, I think if, we, if they were here and you said, how could you give Color of Money two thumbs down? They would say, because it was a bad movie. What are you talking about? You know, like they, they would believe it and they, they would uh, defend their opinions quite uh, intensely. I just want to talk a little about your process writing this book and the research and how long it took you. Um, and I'm sure you've watched every single second of film out there uh, with both Ebert and Siskel. Um, so what was that like, and what surprises did you find in your research that maybe you thought you knew the story, but you were really surprised to learn? Um, well, yes, I did watch a, a large amount of, of Siskel and Ebert episodes, hundreds of episodes, and, and talk show appearances, and appearing on uh, 
anywhere I could find them, they, you know, they, they were on Sesame Street, they were on a, a Nickelodeon movie review show where kids reviewed movies called Rated K for Kid. They appeared on that show and they insulted the children hosts. <laughs> Look it up on YouTube, I'm not making it up. Rated K for Kids, you can watch it tonight. Um, so yes, I watched uh, a, lot of, a lot of the show. That was a big part of it. The be that was the best part of it, honestly, because I had given myself permission to, uh, I know, as I said earlier, the show that I loved as a kid, I got to revisit it and watch hundreds of hours of the show. Um, take very detailed notes and notes on, you know, the reviews, what their ratings were, what they wore. I have pages and pages of notes on their sweaters, which I didn't use in the book, but if anyone wants to know about their sweaters, I, I could probably write an article about that, perhaps. And then, um, you know, some research at libraries and archives, and interviewing a lot of people, and you know, unfortunately they're no longer with us, but I, I spoke to both of their widows, I spoke to a lot of people who worked on the show, who worked with them, and interviewed them, and uh, I mean, yeah, it took a, a couple of years, you know, from start to finish. Um, you know, the fact that I had this obsession going back to childhood definitely helped. And the fact that I had worked on the show at the very end also helped because I had made a few connections um, doing that and I was able to go back to those people and say, hey, remember me? I want to write a book now. Would you talk to me? And luckily a lot of those people said, okay, yeah. Yeah, because they knew from when I did the show at the time, you know, this is now the late 2000s, early 2010s. When I did the show, I would tell people, I, I would just, I was the guy who was happy to be there. Anytime I, you, I would just walk in the room, I'd be smiling, you know, any, any, you know, like, and they would say, well, what do you, why do you want to do this? Or what's your, do you know the show? Oh, I know the show. <laughs> I'm very familiar. I want to be here. Um, you know, or, you know, if, if we were not shooting something and I was with one of the producers or the director, Don Dupree, who had been there for 25 years, I would say, tell me some Gene stories, tell me some Roger stories. And he would, he could tell I was a legitimate, I wasn't, I had no idea of ever writing a book. I just wanted to hear what it was like working with them. And he would tell me these outrageous stories, which are now in the book. Um, and so I think that you, they could tell I was a genuine, pathetic fan. Um, and I do think that helped when the time came to write the book because they knew I wasn't, and I didn't, I don't think, right? I wasn't writing it as like um, a tell-all or only interested in like those crazy stories. I love the crazy stories about them fighting and doing outrageous pranks to each other. They're in the book, but that's not like all that I wanted to do. I really wanted to write a book that really celebrates the show and these guys and their impact and their influence on people like me. So um, yeah, I do think that that probably gave me a little bit of, a, of an edge in terms of approaching people. And um, you know, like I, I had met and worked with Chaz Ebert uh, doing the show. So again, like convincing her to talk to me might've been harder if not for stuff like that. And did you land on any particular review or moment in all of that research that is your favorite Siskel and Ebert moment or disagreement or agreement? Um, I mean, in terms of like a favorite, I don't know if I have one. It's hard to have one favorite. If you read the book, there are 
the examples in there are a lot of my favorites. Like that's how, it's like how do you pick the things to talk about in, in a book about a show where there's literally like thousands of episodes and potentially thousands of examples. Um, and so a lot of the examples in there are a lot of my, my favorites. I mean, I think uh, like ten, instead of one specific favorite, it would be more like a type of review. Like I do love, sure, it's fun when they really argue about some important movie that we now think of as a great work of cinema, like Apocalypse Now. But it's kind of, to me, it's almost more entertaining when it's a movie that's so w utterly worthless and they're fighting the same way. <laughs> So when they look like they're about to punch each other over like Benji the Hunted or, or something like that, that's fun. To me, that's great because like, again, like what, why was this show so successful? Why did it take off? Well, because these guys could argue that passionately about anything, you know? I mean, and they did, they would. Even when the cameras weren't rolling, they would argue about what to eat for lunch, you know? And, that actually happened. They fought so much about what to eat for lunch that the crew had to decide there was lunch detente. They would no longer even pick the crew. They would get the same lunch every single week so that there would be no arguments over what to eat. We must, we will only get the same thing. That way there's no arguments. And what was that? It was a tuna sandwich. Okay, all right. <laughs> tuna sandwich from this one particular place that they both happened to agree was a good Lunch place. <laughs> I don't know the name, but it's in the book. I wanted to end uh, our conversation and with a question about the, the future of film criticism. You're, you yourself are a film critic. Um, you used to write about film criticism for IndieWire. Mm -hmm. um, and the title of this book, or the subtitle, is How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. So I wanted to ask, how have they changed movies forever, and where you see film and media criticism going in the next 20 years? Well, I mean, the, the how they change movies forever, that's a big, you know, it's a big uh, subject, and a lot of the end of the book is about that. But I, I mean, I certainly think that their influence um, is enormous and continues, and it's way beyond just the fact that we still say two thumbs up when we're, you know, uh, reviewing things. I mean, Netflix has a two thumbs up, actually. When you go, like, when you watch something on Netflix and then the, you know, it asks you to rate it, you know, you can put thumbs up or you can put thumbs down, but if you really like it, you can give it two thumbs up. I don't know how they, how, they the only Netflix with that. all of their money could get away with that, because yeah. I'm sure anyone else would get sued, right? Because we said they, they trademarked that. But anyway, um, yeah, they're, I, I, I think that they're, um, their influence on just on film criticism is is huge and continues to linger because again i mean i've talked about what the show meant to me and how much i loved it as a kid and how it much it opened my eyes to film and to film criticism and one of the really kind of wonderful things about not writing the book but sort of like having the book done and having it exist now is how often now when I've done interviews or things like this, people say to me, this was my show. And they have the same story I do. Whereas when I was a kid watching this, again, in suburban New Jersey, it was like my dirty little secret almost. Like I didn't, you know, if this was on Sunday nights, late at night, and I would stay up late and watch it. I would lie to my parents. I would tell them I was going to sleep. And then I would just lay in my bed in the dark waiting for the show to come on. Hope my parents were asleep in the next room. And I would, you don't ever do that. My children are here. You're not allowed. 
<laughs> you're not allowed to do that. But I did do that. That's the honest uh, truth. <laughs> and so, but I loved the show that much, but I didn't like go into school the next day and be like, guys, who watched the school in Eber last night? Woo, did you see that review of Benji the Hunted? That was sweet. Like, it was this like thing that only, I thought I was the only one watching it. And what I have discovered to my delight, like talking to people after this book is that so many people have that exact story. You know, I, I spoke to, I, I was interviewed by a guy who grew up in Billings, Montana. He's like, this was my show. I used to watch it every weekend with my parents and then we would go to the movies and watch the movie that Gene and Roger talked about. Or another guy I talked to was like, I love this show. I was the, this was my movies. This was how I found movies. I grew up in suburban Pennsylvania. And this was the, you know, I was in the middle of Texas and I watched the show. And so there is this whole generation of movie lovers who all share the same origin story, which is Siskel and Ebert. And all those people grew up to become film critics, filmmakers. There's filmmakers that, you know, watched the show as kids and that was how they discovered their love of movies. There are film uh, filmmakers who were work making movies at the time that they kind of helped to get their uh, movies out to wider audiences ha who have uh, these guys largely to thank for their careers. Um, and then there's just people who just love movies who, who really and found a deeper love or, you know, found movies to watch through the show. Um, and so I do think that um, they were incredibly uh, influential and important for uh, that generation, my generation, and beyond. And where do you think we're going with film criticism? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no. um, I, I mean, do I, do I see a, a bright future for people who do what these guys did, which is make a, a really good living being uh, newspaper film critics who are also TV film critics? No, I don't see that. I mean, I don't, it's hard to imagine newspapers existing, much less newspaper film critics existing. But I, I, do I see a bright future of people talking about movies and loving movies and sharing their love of movies more than ever before, including the era of Siskel and Ebert? Yes. Um, the internet is a complicated place and not all of it good, but I think um, in terms of people loving movies, finding out about movies, sharing their love of movies. I mean, it is an incredible tool for both of those things. I mean, we were saying, part of the reason the show thrived in the beginning when Siskel and Ebert weren't very good at their jobs, on camera at least, it took them a while to become the Siskel and Ebert duo we think of now. They were pretty crummy in the beginning. What really sold the show was the clips and the information that it provided. It was almost like a news show in that way. Here's what's coming to movie theaters and here's what you can watch. Now you can, I could look on my phone, you could name any movie that ever existed without getting up, I could watch the trailer from it right now. I might be able to watch the whole movie without moving. You know, it's a, it's a different universe. And then I could, on my phone, I could write a review of it and I could post it. I could put it on Twitter, I could put it on Letterboxd, I could put it on all these places and people could read it. You know, when I was a kid sitting alone in my bedroom at night watching the show, I didn't, I didn't talk to anyone about these. If I, had, if I had wanted to write about them, I could have written it on a piece of paper and then like put it on my desk, but where could I have published it? Nowhere. Now, I could, I could have my own Letterboxd account and review every movie that I watch. Thank goodness I didn't when I was 13 because I can only imagine 
how horrible the things I would have written would have been. I would have had to destroy that website and erase it from existence. But, but anyone who wants to do that now has that outlet. And there is an element of, you know, Siskel and Ebert really was this wonderful, you know, uh, gateway to movie love for so many people like myself, where, you know, it was not an exclusionary show where you watched it and they were like scolding you if you didn't know these great movies. They always made you want to discover. They want want to watch more. And um, so I think that uh, just that that energy you can now find um, online. You can find other energy online as, as well. But I do think that that spirit, you know, you can you can express that in a way that certainly when I was growing up, was much more difficult to do. Now, would I recommend the small children in this audience pursue a career in film criticism? Perhaps not. It's fair. It's yeah. fair. Well, yes. thank you, Matt Singer. Matt is going to stick around. He's going to do some signing. You can buy a copy of Opposable Thumbs right over here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming. One more time thank for you. Matt Singer. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening. Box Office Culture is part of the United Theatre Podcast Network, produced by myself, Tony Nunes, and Lee Metzger, who also edits the show. Listen to other podcasts on the United Theatre Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to the United Theatre Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And if you could take a moment to leave a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. Your feedback helps us create content that you love. So hit that subscribe button and leave us a review, and we'll see you on the next episode.